Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. AKC lecture in the series The Life of the Mind, What is Mental Health? My name is Aisha Nathu and I'm a cultural historian of medicine and the title of my talk today is Mental Health Within Holistic Medicine, A History of Alternatives. I'm going to start by looking at what we mean by health more generally before asking what mental health is and what mental ill health is, and exploring some of the possible causes, frameworks and solutions that have been put forward by health practitioners over the last century uh, to achieve mental well-being. I'll be drawing on my own research on mind-body medicine to examine the growth of stress management strategies used to help prevent and treat um, ill health amongst Western populations in the course of the 20th century and uh, allow for greater individual and also societal health and wellness. So first to look at health, what is health? As this lecture series as a whole demonstrates, if we look across time and cultures, there is not one uh, static definition of health. Um, Nonetheless, it's worth reminding ourselves of one often cited definition or perhaps an ideal of health established by the World Health Organization upon its inception in 1948. And this definition is still used by the WHO today. The WHO defines health as a a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And the inclusion of complete here makes us wonder if such a state is ever attainable, um, never mind sustainable. And in this sense, it seems really like an ideal of health. But what is striking um, and perhaps surprising for anyone who has not come across this definition before is just how holistic it is, emphasising well-being rather than just absence of disease and the connection between physical and mental and social well-being. There are those who believe that spiritual health should also be included in the WHO definition. And indeed, this has been discussed at length amongst WHO member states with quite a lot of support. And if this was included, then that would, um, of course, make for an even more holistic understanding of, of health, what we mean by health. So can or should mental health be understood as a discrete category and can we separate it from the physical and the social and if so what is meant by mental health? Well the World Health Organization also has a more recent definition of specifically mental health but as we shall see this is also incredibly broad and certainly very different from uh, reductionist biomedical explanations of mental health and illness um, understood through brain neurotransmitter activity and chemical balances and imbalances. The WHO definition of mental health is a state of well-being 
in which every individual realises his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to her or his community. As is evident here, this is also a very holistic definition and again makes us question to what extent it even makes sense to single out mental health from physical health and societal contexts. In today's talk, I will focus in particular on the part of the WHO mental health definition about coping with the normal stresses of life. What does this mean? What is normal? How do we cope? What, are, what do we mean by coping with the normal stresses of life and how can this be achieved? And my research over the last few years has focused on the relationship between stress and health and the development and application and uptake of stress management strategies, most notably therapeutic relaxation techniques uh, developed over the last hundred years. And I mainly look at the Anglo-American context. And currently there is a booming market for stress management techniques, especially in the form of secularized meditation practices like mindfulness, as well as yoga and a whole array of um, other relaxation methods. Even before the unprecedented mental health concerns resulting from this global pandemic that we're all living through, uh, popular demand for relaxation and meditation teachings has been rapidly on the increase for decades now. And following the WHO claim that uh, stress um, is a health epidemic of the 21st century in uh, 2016, um, the following year, Apple's 2017 app of the year was named as Calm, which is an app that allows people to learn breathing exercises and follow guided meditations and relax. Um, so meditation and relaxation practices are extremely, extremely sought after. Um, but these techniques are not new, even if the technological platforms provide new means for learning and practicing them. And of course, many of the issues that fuel um, current popular demand for such therapeutic solutions are also not new. There is a, a long history of how meditative techniques have been placed within and adapted from major world religions. So, for example, Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, which you'll be hearing a lot more about in a, a later lecture. But there is also a more recent, um, largely overlooked history spanning the course of the 20th century of the growth of secularised, um, what proponents call scientific relaxation therapies, which were mainly developed and supported by Western biomedical practitioners. Um, and that's what I will be mainly focusing on today. These earlier 20th century techniques uh, very much paved the way for our present pluralistic health and well-being landscapes and um, have informed how wellness can be achieved and maintained. And they've really shaped our understanding of what it means to be healthy in mind and body and also collectively. So I'd like to take us back to the interwar years now and look at the influential work of the Chicago physician and psychologist Edmund Jacobson, who developed um, this very intricate system of neuromuscular relaxation or tension control. He first detailed his findings in a seminal text from 1929 called Progressive Relaxation, 
a physiological and clinical investigation of muscular states and their significance in psychology and medical practice. And this publication was written for a specialist by a medical audience. And then in 1934, he reached far wider audiences through his popular book, You Must Relax, A Practical Method of Reducing the Strains of Modern Living. Now, Jacobson contended that neuromuscular tension, so that is tension held in the body, was responsible for a host of both physical and mental ailments, ranging from high blood pressure and um, headaches to anxiety, insomnia, indigestion and stammering. He proposed that both thought and emotion produced muscular tension. So the subjective experience of an emotional state such as anxiety was expressed within strongly contracted muscles. Now in Jacobson's book from 1934, he asked readers what have muscle tensions to do with worry, fears and other states of mind. And he continued to answer this by saying that tests indicate that when you imagine or recall or reflect about anything, so when you think or when you worry, you tense muscles somewhere. And this could commonly be the eyes, uh, the brow, the jaw, shoulders, and you tense these muscles as if you were actually um, looking or speaking or doing something, but in a much slighter degree. So thoughts and worries and reflections in the mind all produce changes in a muscular bodily tension. And if you relax these particular tensions, Jacobson proposed, you cease to imagine or recall or reflect about the matter in question. So the thoughts and the anxieties dissipate as the muscular tension dissipates. Now, this theory of Jacobson's was um, based on the premise that it is impossible to be tense and relaxed at the same time. That is utterly foundational to, to his theory and his practice, that it's impossible to be tense and relaxed at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. So relaxation is the direct negative of nervous excitement and uh, relaxation and tension are physiological opposites. So according to Jacobson, that's why physically relaxing muscles um, can reduce tension emotionally as well as bodily. And so his work, um, which was aligning with the growing field and principles of psychosomatic medicine, um, was underpinned by an understanding of an inseparable connection between mind and body, considering physical and mental states to be fundamentally interconnected. So um, Jacobson's technique was designed both to prevent and to treat uh, a wider array of physical and mental conditions that were symptomatic of tense, overactive minds and bodies um, unable to keep up with the pace and the strains of modern living. It was a direct treatment for the overfatigued or what was frequently called nervousness. And although uh, Jacobson was writing in a specific context of the early decades um, of 20th century America, a very specific cultural and historical context, 
of course, many of the individual and societal concerns and pressures uh, he highlighted um, came before and exist today related to what he termed high tension living. Um, for Jacobson, this was characteristic, often individualistic, competitive, modern, often urban way of life. So he asked readers of his popular book, You Must Relax, what can be done, if anything, to affect mental quiet amid all this turmoil? So the solution is in the, in the title, um, his method of relaxation. And this was framed as a technical, scientifically validated skill, and it required precise teaching and long-term cultivation. And certainly to begin with, Jacobson thought that the, the teaching of the skill should be done by a physician. So he advocated this uh, much narrower new definition of the term relaxation to mean tension control. And he was trying to shift the meaning of the term relaxation away from vernacular usages, away from um, popular connotations of the terms that meant uh, lying around doing nothing, being lazy, um, recreation, or even rest. He was writing in a, a period where the rest cure was widely prescribed for various conditions, and this included for contemporary uh, labels of hysteria, also a condition known as neurasthenia, sometimes called Americanitis um, or exhaustion, and also a time when the merits of um, industrial rest pauses, so actually having a rest in the working day, having breaks in the working day, uh, were being recognised and introduced in order to increase worker efficacy so that stopping for a bit and having a rest was seen uh, at that time to increase productivity rather than decrease it, um, which was quite a shift in thinking. But Jacobson made a distinction between rest and relaxation, arguing that somebody could be resting or indeed even sleeping uh, without actually reaping the benefits of relaxation and due to residual uh, muscular skeletal tension. So um, cultivating this proprioceptive skill of relaxation was key and Jacobson's relaxation method involved regular training by a physician for months um, in addition to one or two hours of daily home practice to properly learn this skill. And though um, through, well, through his teachings um, of progressive relaxation, uh, patients then learnt to systematically and very, very finely recognise and then release their muscular tension throughout the body. And this training was done uh, in general relaxation, uh, lying down. It was a very lengthy process, but it was foundational um, to, to his method. Obviously, lying down for long periods is not practical in everyday life, and um, he, his method was very much to be used in everyday living. So uh, he also advocated what he termed differential relaxation, which was applicable to everyday active living, and in, in that respect, possibly even more important um, differential relaxation involved, as the term suggests, differentiating between muscle groups. So um, only using the muscles that 
um, need to be used to um, undertake a particular task and relaxing all others um, in order to eliminate any unnecessary tension and not to use any unnecessary energy. So, for example, in this diagram, uh, this picture that he has in You Must Relax of a man reading, um, demonstrating differential relaxation, the muscles in his arms and eyes and hands and neck, for example, all need to be used. Uh, they need to be used to read and they also need to be used to take in the meaning of the text. But other muscles, such as in the shoulders and feet and other facial muscles, for example, can and should all be relaxed. So Jacobson was very keen, as I've mentioned, to place his relaxation method uh, firmly within the, the Western scientific secular landscape and keen to distance his principles from the hypnotic tradition and any form of mysticism. And um, this was differentiating his techniques from a number of other techniques that were being devised at the time. Um, he wanted his method to be part of and taken seriously by and understood through medical science. And in this respect, it was not in any way an alternative to biomedical science. Now, one of the key ways in which he achieved this scientific framing was through the use of laboratory equipment that he claimed could objectively display the workings of his method in controlling states of tension. So in another picture in his, uh, in his book, um, this illustrates um, a man, a, a doctor in this case, learning how to relax through Jacobson's meth method using a, an instrument called a neurovoltmeter. And um, Jacobson himself devised this, he built this, this instrument. Um, and it was capable of detecting minuscule changes in the electrical activity of muscles that signified uh, the presence of tension. So this made tension both visible and, um, and quantifiable. And this instrument in many ways was a precursor to later uh, biofeedback technology that, uh, that developed from the 1960s and 70s. Um, but Jacobson didn't actually encourage any sort of reliance on uh, an external device um, anything that would detract from the body's own sensitivity to tension. So he didn't want people to have to need and rely on, a, on an, an instrument to show them whether there was uh, whether they were tense. He wanted them to recognize it within themselves straight away and be able to release it once they'd gone through the, the training process. But nonetheless, uh, through instrumentation, Jacobson made these states of tension and conversely relaxation uh, visible and measurable and he certainly acquired the attention of other medical practitioners um, as well as gaining a significant popular support for his methods in the United States, uh, also in Britain and elsewhere. So I'll now just turn to the, the British context in Britain, muscular relaxation practices were enthusiastically taken up in the 1930s. And this was actually especially within the performing arts amongst actors and also for speech therapy. And there were practitioners who worked in this area and um, found relaxation practices to be especially effective um, for helping with stammering and stuttering. 
And by the 1950s, relaxation had also become an integral and a routinized part of antenatal care and preparation for childbirth. And relaxation practices were promoted through an organization called the National Childbirth Trust, the NCT, uh, which is very popular today still with over 100,000 members in Britain. Um, but originally it was called the Natural Childbirth Association, what's now the NCT, and was set up in 1956 by a mother called Prunella Briance, who had endured a, a really traumatic stillbirth of her own child um, under conventional obstetric care. So she founded NCT and this organisation promoted the teachings of an obstetrician called Grantly Dick Reed. Now he started work in the interwar period in a pronatalist um, socio-political context where he concerned himself with the relatively low birth rate amongst middle-class women and he suggested that their reproduction rates were being impeded by their fear of the pain of childbirth and that relaxation was a means uh, to break this cycle, to break the fear, tension, pain cycle and enable a so-called natural childbirth. And this would re reduce the need for um, pharmaceutical painkillers and allow childbirth to become not only a desperately fearful or painful experience, but actually a positive experience for mothers. Um, and although Grantly Dick Reed was actually quite marginalised, quite uh, sidelined by his medical colleagues, um, he gained a lot of support from influential midwives and physiotherapists who helped to design and teach and implement relaxation exercises for pregnant women. And then he gained wide popular support uh, especially through the uh, founding of the NCT. In the post-war decades, antenatal teachers, in fact, became the leading proponents of therapeutic relaxation, adapting their teachings from the antenatal periods to the postnatal period to help mothers manage um, the multiple challenges of parenthood so extending it from just uh, childbirth to life beyond um, childbirth, actually having their children and living this new life as a parent. And physiotherapists who initially had worked with um, reducing pain during childbirth extended the principles of relaxation for childbirth to uh, relaxation for pain, pain management more generally. And alongside Jacobson's neuromuscular relaxation methods, a whole variety of other relaxation techniques were developed in the post-war decades. Um, and they were used clinically within psychotherapeutic treatments. So, for example, uh, desensitization treatments for phobia um, and also within cardiac rehabilitation and uh, within pain management clinics. And these practices were also widely taken up in workplaces and in popular culture as part of um, a growing stress management and wellness industry that was already firmly in place by the 1980s and has uh, grown ever since. Self-help books and uh, cassettes 
uh, group classes and radio and television programs all helped to popularize both physical relaxation methods um, as well as meditation and yoga practices that also gained in popularity from the 1960s. And um, here are just a, a, a selection of some of these popular self-help books that were, were written um, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, these self-help books um, and teaching material that went with them, cassettes and so on, um, were adapted to secular Western audiences. And these, uh, these populations were by no means confined to New Age countercultural movements. So helping to drive the demand for and the legitimacy of these techniques were a number of developing fields of research. Uh, these included psychological models of coping, coping mechanisms, um, the science of stress, and chronic disease epidemiology. And together this gave rise um, to a reorientation of public health education. Um, chronic disease epidemiology changed a focus uh, from, uh, towards rather, individual lifestyles impacting on health and that individual lifestyle changes could help uh, minimise um, risk factors to ill health, such as smoking. So once in the early 1960s, a link was established between smoking um, and, uh, and disease, uh, public health campaigns try to encourage people to change their, their habits, to um, change their lifestyles, to incorporate better diets, exercise, uh, to stop smoking for the sake of their own health. And that responsibility was placed more and more on the individual to do so. Heart disease for example, in this context became no longer considered to be an inevitable process of aging and degeneration in, in a way that it had been largely conceptualized at the uh, turn of the 20th century, but was instead reframed as a disease largely caused by, but then also preventable through an individual's way of living, an individual's lifestyle. And although the exact role that stress played in chronic disease, in, in ill health, was up for debate amongst the wider medical community, um, it was in this uh, new public health context, and in this context, that chronic stress uh, started to be considered uh, to be an additional risk factor to both physical and mental ill health. And uh, reflecting this, a phrase that was commonly found in popular literature on stress and relaxation was that disease spells dis-ease. The new discourse around the science of stress was articulated and promoted most especially by the Hungarian-born Canadian physiologist called Hans Selye. And he was the author of a landmark publication called The Stress of Life in 1956. Um, his work also very much built on the earlier pioneering work of the physiologist Walter Cannon, who had developed the notion of homeostasis or the, the maintenance of, of balance or physiological equilibrium in the body. And also the concept of the fight or flight response, an instinctive 
physiological response to a threatening situation that readies an animal or um, indeed a human human animal to either fight or run away from the threat. Chronic stress from the pressures of modern living became seen as a possible cause of hypertension and heart disease with the body repeatedly eliciting the fight or flight or the stress response and unable to maintain a healthy equilibrium or unable to settle back down to a healthy equilibrium. Cardiologists Friedman and Rosenman's delineation of so-called type A personalities characterised by highly ambitious, um, impatient, fast-paced, stereotypically middle-aged male executives as being particularly prone to heart attacks made relaxation practices become more relevant to and popular amongst male working populations. Although it was found uh, through the landmark longitudinal Whitehall studies on civil servants, which was led by Sir Michael Marmot, that in fact the social gradient of cardiac disease had actually reversed by the 1950s. So that's uh, meaning that workers of lower social standing were in fact more at risk of developing heart disease than their middle class counterparts. This stereotype of the at-risk business executive um, endured well into the later decades of the 20th century. Psychological models, especially the work of the psychologist Richard Lazarus, pertaining to um, an individual's means of coping and methods of coping, also gave fresh terminology and scientific legitimation and popular support for relaxation practices. And under this paradigm, stressful environments were not in and of themselves detrimental to health. Um, they weren't in and of themselves problematic as they could be modulated by the way in which an individual coped with or responded to or adapted to those external stresses. And in his early 20th century writings, Jacobson himself had outlined that there was merit in distinguishing between what he called the issue and the attitude especially as one cannot always deal with the cause. But whatever the cause, uh, with stress considered to be a threat to health, relaxation was presented by advocates as a possible solution. And this was increasingly so due to the work of the Harvard cardiologist Herbert Benson. In the mid-1970s, Benson further bolstered the therapeutic appeal and the uptake of relaxation and meditative practices amongst these um, health-seeking Western populations through his best-selling 1975 publication called The Relaxation Response. Benson had first been approached by advanced practitioners of uh, TM, that's Transcendental Meditation, to study the physiological effects of this mantra-based meditative technique. Um, but later he extended his research to a, a range of other practices, which included um, progressive muscle relaxation, and also yoga and uh, qigong, also repetitive prayer. Um, and he concluded that they all had uh, this potential to produce um, striking underlying physiological changes, uh, what he termed the relaxation response. 
And these changes were, were sim there were similar changes that took place regardless of which technique was, was practiced. Uh, the relaxation response was defined as a physical state of deep rest that changes the physical and emotional response to stress. And he defined the relaxation response in opposition to the fight or flight response, so the opposite of the fight or flight response. Physiologically, the opposite um, changes take place through the relaxation response as they do uh, through stress, the fight or flight response. As well as much more visible physical indicators of tension, um, as shown in this um, relaxation self-help book by the British physiotherapist Jane Madders, who was a very prominent relaxation um, practitioner. Um, here we see frowning and hunched shoulders and clenched fists and, and teeth, uh, very visible outward signs of tension. In Benson's work, he demonstrated that uh, training in this whole range of different relaxation methods um, would allow the practitioners to make changes in the inner workings of the body. And that's what he demonstrated and measured. Um, changes to the physiological functions that were in fact previously thought to be involuntary. So in opposition to the fight or flight response and the changes that take place there, through lowering um, metabolism, uh, lowering blood pressure and heart rate and um, respiratory rate amongst a whole um, other um, set of physical indicators, Benson's findings suggested that the relaxation response, however it was elicited, um, be it through mantra recitation or conscious muscular tension release, was a powerful antidote to a whole array of stress-related conditions and is arguably the, the cornerstone of what is known as mind-body medicine. So although relaxation practices have been generally supported by proponents from Jacobson to Benson as a, a complement to mainstream biomedical approaches, they have also variously been promoted as a, a viable alternative to, um, to drugs or at least a means to reduce the consumption of long-term medication, for example, for insomnia or in some cases hypertension and anxiety. And as I've detailed in um, one of my recent articles, um, the uptake of relaxation practices and um, minor tranquilizers to an extent have, shared, have a shared history um, of intersecting populations and intersecting goals, uh, which help to co-create their markets. Tranquilizers uh, promise to restore a sense of physical and emotional equilibrium by chemically rectifying supposed neurological imbalances. Marketed from the 1950s, particularly, though not exclusively, to women, uh, it was anxious housewives and mothers who made up a significant proportion of the millions of tranquilizer users. In Britain, women were twice as likely as men to be prescribed psychotropic drugs uh, by their general practitioners. And following Milltown and Equinil, which were drugs in, uh, developed in the 1950s, Valium, which was introduced in 1963, became the single most um, 
popular drug in pharmaceutical history until Prozac entered the market in the 1990s. And relaxation practitioners often promoted their self-help methods as being a safe and effective, um, even empowering pharmaceutical alternative, um, very much continuing with the slogan from the earlier um, naturopathy movement of drugless healing. Relaxation, um, they advocated, was a way to restore balance and ease in mind and body using um, the built-in tranquilizer. So the tranquilizer within, within the body. And as one prominent relaxation and antenatal teacher, uh, Betty Parsons, had proclaimed, dropping shoulders is as good as taking a Valium. It is much better. You carry it within you. It works instantly and has no nasty side effects. Practitioners also asserted that um, practices such as neuromuscular relaxation were cheaper to administer than drugs and far less time-consuming than psychotherapy. The extensive popular uptake of minor tranquilizers for anxiety had really altered the threshold of what was considered to be tolerable um, and acceptable emotional and behavioural responses um, to the trials and tribulations of everyday living um, as these emotions and responses became treatable. And as various uh, scholars have argued, minor tranquilizers such as Milltown and Valium, which, as I've mentioned, were prescribed overwhelmingly to women, uh, performed a potent social as well as chemical function, um, encouraging and enabling women to cope with and uh, better perform their social duties, but without necessarily addressing or changing environments um, or expectations or patriarchal frameworks. And um, indeed, similar critiques have been levelled at relaxation practices um, as a substitute for pharmaceuticals, serving a similar function, a coping method that in fact sustains rather than changes the status quo. Nonetheless, even if uh, coping strategies are not sufficient solutions to wider societal problems, they can still be useful and uh, do not need to replace demands for structural change. So Jacobson had explained um, back in 1934 uh, in You Must Relax, during treatment by relaxation, the purpose is not to palliate the unavoidable hardships of life, um, and he gave grief as an example, but to recognise them clearly and to live through them successfully. And I think this very much chimes with the WHO definition of mental health, um, including being able to cope with the normal stresses of life an assumption that those stresses will happen, they are a part of life, they are a normal part of life, and um, how do we cope with them? To end, I'd just like to return to the general definition of health, as outlined by the WHO, a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And uh, talk very briefly um, about the social aspects of health, um, which I, I haven't talked about today, uh, but that I know other lectures in this series will address from a number of other perspectives. I have spoken in detail about 
how understandings of stress management methods and their application to health and well-being were and are premised on there being a functional unity between body and mind. Um, but it's worth noting that even within this um, very narrow domain of, of healthcare, of stress management, um, there is an implicit acknowledgement of the role of the social and um, communal aspects of health. So although relaxation techniques are often considered um, archetypal self-help methods and purely individualistic, there are social dimensions at work even here insofar as an individual's mental health impacts on and uh, conversely is, is partly determined by people around them. And um, there are some negative implications around this notion of um, what I've termed in, in my writings on this issue, um, contagious tension, referring to the potential knock-on effect on other people, um, of an individual's um, negative state of mind or um, inability to cope. But there are also optimistic and hopeful dimensions to understanding mental health in this communal way. Um, and from the early 20th century, proponents uh, of relaxation put forward their, their therapeutic promise of these strategies that went beyond individualistic ends, um, espousing how they could help positively change wider communities and cultures of care, be that in the home, within education, um, or within healthcare settings, or indeed wherever individuals are interconnected and support one another. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.